our biggest opportunity and what we're jumping on is just, you know, this, this amazing amount of funding that's coming through the Inflation Reduction Act. And we want to be able to make sure that North Carolina is, is maximizing that to the extent it can to build these sustainable systems, to build our ecosystem of community lenders, to make sure that we can continue this even after the funding is gone. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 99th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. I wanted to make sure you caught that during the intro. Episode 99. We are 99 episodes in and one show away from 100. Stay tuned as we have some exciting content coming your way. But on today's episode, We talk green banks and specifically what North Carolina has in store as our green bank gets off the ground, what it means for you, low wealth households, and the clean energy economy as a whole coming up. But before that conversation, a few short updates. We're now a little over a month away from the 2023 Making Energy Work Conference scheduled for November 2nd through 3rd in Raleigh. Now's the time to register if you have not yet done so. And in case you missed it, the agenda for this year's conference was recently announced, which includes keynotes on the carbon plan, the future of offshore wind in North Carolina, developing equitable clean energy policies, and many more. This is the conference to learn about all the latest policy updates taking place within the Southeast, while catching up with industry leaders from all across the region. Hurry and register today. For more information, visit makingenergywork.com. In other news, NCSEA just released our Economic Analysis of Clean Energy Development in North Carolina report, which showed that the cumulative economic impact of renewable energy and energy efficiency projects in the state totaled over $59 billion throughout the last 16 years. Additionally, the report highlighted that approximately $31.1 billion was directly spent on clean energy development, bringing outsized benefits to some of the most economically distressed counties across the state, including Duplin, Robison, Halifax, Edgecombe, Cumberland, Northampton, and Bladen. The exciting news of this report also coincides with the start of Clean Energy Week from September 25th through 29th, as proclaimed recently by Governor Roy Cooper. Support for the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast comes from Solarize the Triangle, a community-based group purchasing program for solar energy and battery storage. Available to Triangle area homeowners, businesses, and nonprofit organizations. More information, along with free evaluation appointments, through September 30th, can be found at solarizethetriangle.com. Clean energy. Our first guest on today's episode is the founder and co-director of the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund, a nonprofit green bank that utilizes public and private capital to catalyze investments in clean and efficient energy and transportation projects in the state with a focus on traditionally underserved communities. 
She was most recently the Senior Advisor for Climate Change Policy at the North Carolina Department of Transportation, where she coordinated climate-related transportation activities across NCDOT, including the development of the state's first clean transportation plan. Prior to this role, this guest worked at the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions at Duke University on the climate and energy team. In this role, she focused on the intersection of energy and environmental policy, primarily in the electricity, financial, and transportation sectors. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jen Weiss to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Jen, welcome to the pod. I am so excited to be back, Matt. Thank you so much. Our next guest serves as co-director of the new North Carolina Clean Energy Fund, where she will be seeking capital and building partnerships for an equitable climate transition. Our guest has made her way to climate finance by the way of environmental law, public health, and building science. She has been steeped in market transformation and impact finance through past work at Self-Help Credit Union, Advanced Energy, and RTI International. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Melissa Malkin-Weber to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Melissa, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having us, Matt. All right, so to uh, kick things off, can you all tell us just a little bit more about what a green bank is and what they're meant to do for the market overall? Sure, I can start with it. So green banks are mission-based lenders at, at their core. Um, they're looking to advance clean energy investment across their, their regions and their, or their states. And I should say one thing up front is that they're not banks. A common misperception is that they're banks, but they do not accept deposits. So typically what they do is take on a lender type role to bring lending to underserved communities and, and others that might not be able to get the financing that they need to do the clean energy investment that they're trying to do. One of the keys to green banks, one of the reasons that we, we love our green bank here in North Carolina, the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund, is that it leverages public funds to attract private capital. And so green banks are not looking to replace anything that exists today. In fact, we want to enhance it and make it robust and, and form partnerships with existing lenders throughout our state. But really what we want to do is fill gaps in the marketplace. So if there's if there's something that needs to be done and there's some type of financial barrier that's preventing the investment into that clean energy space, that's where green banks can hope to step in and fill that void. So Additionally, what needs does a green bank serve that existing private financial institutions may not be able to? I.e., you know, what what sets this apart from a traditional lending institution that I might myself go into to to borrow or deposit money? Well, Matt, it, the green banks are typically specialized to the credit risk of clean energy. So imagine you're a developer and you're going to go on down to your commercial bank looking for financing for a super cool, innovative microgrid project. Typically, a commercial bank isn't going to have an underwriter who's seen a project like that. And so they just, they're not going to be able to put the time in to get up the learning curve and underwrite that loan. Green banks, by contrast, will have seen a bunch of those. And if they haven't seen them, they will have friends in other states who have seen them. And so they can both underwrite the risks of that particular project specifically, but also understand the risk profile of that entire sector. So often a green bank will specialize. So for instance, the Solar Access Fund in Baltimore all they do is neighborhood-owned community solar. That's what they know. That's what they focus on. Michigan Saves does mostly consumer residential loans. That's what they know. That's what they focus on. They wouldn't do your microgrid loan either. The New York Green Bank specializes in big-dollar, highly-structured loans. So within that universe, there are different focus areas. So the one thing that that you know you, you were talking about is is filling that need 
in understanding kind of the, the technical aspects of underwriting for these these projects that maybe a, a traditional financial institution might not necessarily understand themselves. But uh, from my understanding, too, there are partnerships that green banks and the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund, for example, would be creating with some of the private institutions that are already out there in the market. So can you talk about maybe some of the work that you all are doing to collaborate with some of those existing private lending institutions or financial institutions in North Carolina? Absolutely, Matt. The, that's really our that's our theory of change. That when we make the pie bigger, that we're able to drive the clean energy transition faster. And given the climate crisis, that's the imperative of the day. So we recognize that we ourselves, particularly as a startup organization, are not going to fill all of these gaps and we're not going to meet all of these needs. But we know in North Carolina, there's a tremendously creative lending sector. Community development lenders across the state are reaching communities that commercial banks don't really know how to serve well or have passed by. Credit unions are serving consumers in unique and innovative ways. And so there's a bunch of tools that we can adapt that have been used successfully in other parts of the country to help all of those lenders expand their book of business to do more home energy loans for, say, electrification, heat pumps, chargers, to bring to bear the other, and we'll talk later in the show, I'm sure, about the expanding landscape for additional rebates and subsidies. I just wanted to add on to that and just and just talk about the different roles that green banks can play, because Melissa was talking about how we would partner with different community lenders. But I think one of the neat things about green banks is that we can play different roles depending on the situation. So in some in some cases, we would take on a direct lending role. In some cases, we might take on a, a connecting the dots role, a connector role, just to bring um, you know some of our financial institution friends into a program. And sometimes we're just an educator, right? Just educating people like Melissa was saying, just saying, you know, hey, look, we, we know clean energy, we can educate you. So we try to play the role to fit the need that is that exists in the marketplace. One example that I'll add is that we've had some really good working group conversations with community lenders in the state over the summer, getting ready for the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund opportunity. And an additional role we can play is the convening role to bring the community lenders together. They gen- they're good collaborators. They like to learn from each other, but they're not really quite sure how you shoehorn additional energy efficiency into a loan to, a, let's say, a building for a daycare or a building for a food bank or a YMCA. Some of those are technical questions. Some of them are risk and underwriting questions. Some of them are where might we get additional capital that's priced right so that we can do this? So there's a lot of moving parts there and community lenders coming together are, are a really good way to start solving those problems. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and, and the Inflation Reduction Act here in, in just a little bit. But one thing that, that you both had mentioned is, is the fact that you know green banks aren't exclusive to North Carolina. There have been green banks that uh, have already been operating in other states for, for a number of years. So with that, what benefits have we seen from some of those green banks in, in other states and other regions in the country thus far to date? 
Yeah, that great question, Matt. Um, there, one of the one of the reasons that we were able to set ourselves up so quickly is that we followed our brothers and sisters in other states and and learned what they did, right, and watched what they did and learned from them. And so I should say here that there are about twenty green banks right now. Some of them are state green banks. Some of them are local green banks, county green banks. Some of them are even regional green banks. And I should also mention that they're set up in different ways. Some have been set up by a state legislature, and they're they're almost a public entity. Some are quasi-public, perhaps receiving funding from a state, but operating independently. And then others, like ours, are nonprofit organizations, completely independent from the state, but supported by the state and working very closely with the state. And so we've been really working closely with a lot of the the green banks right now, especially around the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, because you know we're, we're a network of green banks across the country, and we want to make sure that we're building off of each other and partnering with each other and learning from each other. So there's a great consortium that's been set up by the Coalition for Green Capital called the American Green Bank Consortium. And, and this is where we, we get to talk and we get to learn and we get to work on things together. So a terrific network. As Melissa said, you know, just like the community lenders are collaborative, the green banks are very collaborative. And so as we continue to evolve, as we continue to get our, ourselves up on our feet, um, we're going to continue to work with our green bank friends very closely. And this is something that you both have been working on for some time, even kind of predating the official formation of the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund. I know, Jen, back to your time at the Nicholas Institute, you had put together a great report talking about the benefit of green banks and what they could do and bring to, to North Carolina. So what served overall as the inspiration for the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund in establishing a green bank here? And, and what benefits do you foresee from having an institution like this right here in our backyard? Yeah, yeah. I think Melissa and I have been talking about green banks for over 10 years, started at a lunchtime conversation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had something that did this? And a lot of it came from the consortium that I mentioned before. Other green banks started to do clean energy lending. And as we are working in our different jobs, and we heard about the barriers in North Carolina about lending in different areas, whether it's disadvantaged communities, whether it's small businesses, maybe even whether it's a farmer, there were different barriers to doing clean energy investment. And so we started to think, gosh, a, a green bank entity might be the perfect entity to be able to fill that gap. Began researching them when I was at the Nicholas Institute. For whatever reason, at the same time, the clean energy plan was going on. And so a lot of stakeholders were, were bringing up similar types of barriers. I really wish we had an accessible financing tool that would make this type of investment easy for everyone to do. The energy efficiency roadmap at the same time brought up these things. And so it just occurred to us that this is the time. This is the time for North Carolina to have a statewide entity that can start to address these barriers, really dig into them and work with our partners and start to develop a program that can work. About 2020, I should mention, there was some mention at the federal level of a national green bank, something that could seed green banks to start. And so that was the time when Melissa and I said, we need to establish a nonprofit. We need to be ready for any type of federal funding that might become available to start up green banks like ours. So we established our 501c3 in 2020, established a volunteer board of directors. I served as chair. Melissa was vice chair. And we just started to, to educate people about it and to learn about the gaps and to start to raise funds, philanthropic funds, to be able to actually get this up off the ground. So that in the fall of 2022, when the Inflation Reduction Act came to be and there was some large amount of money for startup green banks and the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, we were ready. We were poised. And so Melissa and I were able to jump right in, I guess, um, to the executive director role in March of 2023 um, and just start to, to hopefully lead this organization to be able to accomplish and do all the things that our stakeholders really need us to do in the, in the state. And I'll add one more uh, piece to what Jen just said is that because 
so much of the opportunity right now is driven by the Inflation Reduction Act. It is incredibly helpful to have a flexible lending institution in the state that is set up and ready to go and then ready to build out our products lines and our offerings and our activities around the needs that are being defined by the Inflation Reduction Act. So Inflation Reduction Act wants to see a lot of private capital being attracted. They want to see a lot of leverage. They want to see financing mechanisms, not just grants. And so compared to other states where the where they don't have an established green bank, they don't have a 501c3 setup, they don't have a board of directors, they're trying to stand up a green bank on the fly fast, they're, they're really not able to take advantage of this opportunity in the way that North Carolina is because we've, we're already two years ahead in that groundwork. So one of the things that that uh, you know, Jen, you, you had mentioned in terms of the the focus of the Green Bank addressing here in, in North Carolina is improving accessibility to clean energy for underserved communities across the state. So thinking about your, your scope with the Clean Energy Fund, how are you planning to, to work with these types of communities across the state and improve access to clean energy overall? Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, one of the things I say a lot is um, there's there's funding available. It's just connecting it to the right person that needs it at the right time, right? So you know, a couple of things that we'd be looking to do is to a reduce the barrier to the to the partners, the financial partners that Melissa was talking about, to be able to offer this type of financing for clean energy. So whether that's a credit enhancement, like some sort of a loss reserve, which in the case of a default would be a backstop for that or it's buying down interest rates to make it more affordable for lower income households, we would look to do things like that. But it's also, I think, educating on the benefits and the, and the different ways that the, the homeowners or the, or the other parts of our population can, can get into the clean energy space, right? Because you need to understand what your benefits are before you want to be able to, to purchase something or to invest in something. So I think we can play a bit of an educator role as well. I'll add the that for low wealth communities, the the North Star of Green Banks is additionality. Get clean energy financed where it's not happening now. And paving paths for low wealth communities is about as additional as it gets. And so there's a moral imperative of making sure that in the clean energy transition, low wealth communities don't get left behind. And I think we can all understand that. And there's a imperative to design the financing so that it makes sense for low wealth communities. So in some cases, a low income household really shouldn't be taking on debt unless there's additional revenue and underwriting future energy. It gets complicated. And so in some cases, like under the solar for all competition, a lot of that money needs to be directing grants in the right place at the right time. But sometimes it can look like again, under solar for all, directing loans and grants and maybe credit enhancements to multifamily owners of affordable housing to craft a package that lets them bring renewables to their facilities. Another example that we're really inspired by is the work of Solar Energy Loan Fund in Florida, and they've had a huge impact on low-income communities through lending that's 
very, very carefully tailored to the ability to repay of that family. So very responsible, careful lending. Can I add one more point to it? Because you brought up stacking of capital. And I think one of the one of the things that green banks do really well is bring in different types of incentives and capital. So whether that's bringing in grant funding through something like Solar for All, whether that's bringing in um, incentives like the new energy efficiency incentives that will be coming from the Inflation Reduction Act, tying it into any rebates and incentives from utilities, weatherization programs, making sure that we're tapping into those for the, uh, the income qualified households. So really making sure that we're tying into every bit of financing or incentive that we can can to make sure that it is affordable and it is accessible to the homeowner. Melissa brought up a great point that we do not want to overburden already burdened households. So we want to make sure that the package that we're bringing to them is at the most reduced cost that we can. You brought up a a really good point uh, earlier in talking about the role of, of education and outreach. You know, I think about all of the different rebates and incentives and funding that available via the Inflation Reduction Act, via utilities in the state. It is really complicated to try to navigate all of that. And I've heard a lot of concerns and conversations over the past couple of weeks that the communities that, that need these rebates and incentives the most are the ones that maybe aren't aware of these incentives uh, being available to them. And so having that conduit or liaison, uh, being able to serve as, as the connector within underserved communities to make sure that they're aware that these are available as they look to upgrade their home and electrify their home and reduce utility bills, especially for families that are facing a high energy burden is really, really important. So speaking of the Inflation Reduction Act. Matt, can I, I'm sorry, can I insert one thing before we move off of the educating? Yes. North Carolina is has a tremendous tool in our toolbox, which is the desired database housed at NC State. And so any kind of educational effort that we design and work up under, say, Solar for All or one of these other rebate programs in conjunction with probably with the State Energy Office will be lead on a lot of these, will take advantage of the fact that we've already got some tools in the toolbox. So the a second really important principle for green banks is don't reinvent what already works. Yeah. That's a that's a great point. And and yeah, there are a number of groups, like you mentioned, the North Carolina Clean Energy Technology Center and the Desire Database, which have been so impactful over the years. And I know Rewiring America has rolled out their IRA calculator, which I find myself referencing almost every other day. And so I know there will continue to be more and more resources that are rolled out and helping to to educate and, and make, you know, those connections for folks. So I'm glad that you're helping to connect a lot of those dots there. Yeah, the the other piece that's really important to emphasize is that we recognize the crucial role that community groups and grassroots groups play in connecting communities to new new ideas, new funding, resources, and so we don't kid ourselves that we can just build something and it will get immediate uptake. So we, we absolutely recognize, and we'll, you'll see this in the Solar for All program that the State Energy Office is leading, there's going to be a huge emphasis on community engagement. And as much as possible, we're trying to budget to be able to compensate community groups to participate appropriately and to really recognize the value of their time and their engagement. I think probably everybody who's listening has an example in their mind of a time when somebody got 
a grant and a good idea and they went to try to engage community groups and they figured out, you know, that they were just one of a long line of people lining up to talk to XYZ outreach group. And so we we recognize that real engagement is is a big deal and needs to be done well and done right. So we do, we don't take that for granted is what I'm saying. I don't want to say that we have cracked that nut because because we haven't, but we're we're approaching this with a lot of humility. It's a really good point and is something that doesn't happen overnight either, right? In building relationships with a lot of these organizations across the state and making sure that we're working collaboratively and connecting with these communities in the right way that resonates. So so going to the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, we talked about the, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. There are a number of other sort of provisions and pools within the Inflation Reduction Act as a whole that I think North Carolina is well poised to take advantage of. And the and the Clean Energy Fund is is the conduit for for a lot of that here within the state. So can we talk a little bit about you know, how North Carolina stands to benefit from some of those buckets of funding that we maybe have already mentioned and what that funding would be allocated towards moving forward. Yeah, I can take that. The Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund is broken out into three pots. And the the one that's front and center right now, because it's due first, the application for Solar for All is due first. That, as I've mentioned, is being led by the State Energy Office. We're part of the consortium who's helped crafting that. And then as soon as the award is made, then we go into full-scale community engagement, stakeholder engagement mode. So if you're listening to this and you're going, wait a minute, I've got an idea, it's not too late. The second piece of the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund is broken up into two pots. NCIF is more of the capital markets pot. CCIA is more of the community development pot. They both have Justice 40 goals. So 40% of the benefits need to flow to low-wealth communities as defined by EPA. Those funds are going is are going to flow mostly in the form of low-cost capital that is focused on different markets. So there will be low-cost capital focused on the multifamily market. And what we hope is that every lender in the state, particularly the nonprofit community impact kind of lenders, are going to say, oh, low-cost capital focused on affordable multifamily clean energy projects. We're going to stand up that function in our lending shop or affordable capital for consumer loans. We're going to stand up a product that serves our members who are consumers and need an unsecured loan for solar. So the um, that's how the funding will come down. It'll be low-cost capital. It won't be grant capital. Some of it will be chunked into the kind of credit enhancement buckets that Jen's talking about. Some of it will be chunked into more of a secondary markets kind of situation where, say, a local lender makes 100 loans for heat pumps and then they need to recycle that capital. So they package them up and they sell them to the intermediary and they get the capital back and they rinse and they repeat. And I'm saying all this as if it's clear what's going to happen. And that's not actually true, right? The applications are due in October. They will be the lead, lead applicants are teams across the country. And then EPA will make awards to uh, groups of national level teams, and then these deployment networks need to come to the fore to actually make the loans. 
So green banks are among the deployment networks, credit unions are among the deployment networks, community development finance institutions are among the deployment networks, a bunch of specialized finance organizations are raising their hands and saying, oh, we can deploy this. So it'll be, there's a a lot of development between when those applications go in, when EPA makes the awards, and when the funding actually starts to flow, which is expected to be late 2024, early 2025. Yeah. And and one thing I wanted to add, I mean, as Melissa mentioned, there's a great opportunity out there, but one of the keys to accessing that opportunity is to match our need here in North Carolina with those opportunities. And so one of the things that Melissa and I have been really focused on over the last six months is to develop our pipeline. What if we were to receive these, these amounts of funding through the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and other funding sources and the Inflation Reduction Act, what would we do with it? What would we immediately do it? Where's the biggest impact for this from a greenhouse gas reduction um, perspective, from reducing energy and security perspective, from health and, and human services perspective? How, how would we use that money? And so the, the fun part of our job has been you know, listening to those needs and then matching those up with the funding opportunities that we are seeing. And it's you know as you see that pipeline evolving and you're seeing all the people that you may be able to help, it gets really exciting when you're starting to write the applications because you can weave it into there and, and show how much impact we're going to be able to have in North Carolina. So Melissa and I are, yeah, we may not get the funding for another year based on the the federal process, but we can build those relationships and we can start to think about what those programs are going to look like when the funding does finally arrive. So I wanted to, to follow up, Melissa, on a few things, too, that you mentioned for, for those that maybe aren't as, as well steeped in the Inflation Reduction Act. So you mentioned CCIA and NCIF. Can you talk a little bit more about what those acronyms are and what they mean? And then I also want to take a step back as well and talk about the, the Solar for All program and what that stands to potentially bring to the state for, for solar in general moving forward. Solar for All is, at the national level, is a $7 billion competition. And EPA just reissued some guidance saying, well, early letters of intent are showing $43 billion worth of demand for this stuff. And so they rewrote the rules a little bit to make it clearer and reduce the number of people who are potentially going to apply and the size of the awards they're applying for. The focus area for, for Solar for All is, first of all, it's very much state-focused. So EPA wants to see either a state or a tribal lead, and they're, not, and they're only applying one award per state, and with a few kind of overarching sectory angles that are less important for North Carolina. And it is residential household-serving solar only, and it is very, very, very focused on benefiting low-wealth households rather than being a broad-brush everybody benefit. By contrast, the National Clean Investment Fund and the Clean Communities Investment Accelerators are pots of funding that are was meant to serve a broader universe of projects. It's not just residential, behind-the-meter, distributed generation solar. It's clean energy, and their their definitions are pretty clearly set up to make it clear that it can't be the kind of clean energy that's like new modular nuclear or carbon capture and storage. It's very much, there's got to be other kinds of pollution reduction. So 
the and then it can be multifamily, it can be agricultural, it can be residential, it can be commercial, it can be wind, it can be solar, it can be storage, it can be microgrids. The core to the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, all three of those buckets that Melissa just mentioned, are A, to have an impact on reducing greenhouse gas uh, emissions, of course, B, to really build a sustainable program so that you are starting to attract private capital. So, So I mentioned previously, that's one of the roles of green banks is to use public money to attract a larger private investment so you can leverage that money and attract more. So we want to be using those funds to build our network, to build our ecosystem of clean energy lenders. And then the third piece, is on all three of those, it has the Justice 40, at least 40% of the benefits need to go to underserved communities. Now, the Solar for All, as Melissa mentioned, has a much higher, or closer to 100% of those funds need to go. But all three of them have at least 40%. And so that will be one of the goals as we're looking to deploy those. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep testing you all on, on these different programs under IRA. So, so talking about Solar for All, North Carolina stands to potentially bring in up to $250 million. What does that look like in, in practice? Is that funding that would be solely allocated for actually purchasing you know, PV systems for low-wealth households? Is it meant to address barriers in the market for PV adoption? What does that look like? Fundamentally, the aspirational vision that I think everybody has for this is that it will act to transform markets, that it will help states overcome current hurdles, and that it will catalyze pilots and demonstration projects that will then lead to more widespread adoption in a variety of ways. It also comes with a requirement that makes this tricky. So the requirement is every household that benefits, according to the EPA rules of the road, has to benefit by 20% on their utility bill off the bat. And if you've priced solar in North Carolina for a home, you know that that, that that's not how those projects pencil. They can achieve that benefit, but it takes longer than, than zero months. So there's likely to be a big slice of grant subsidy that needs to get applied in order to meet that EPA rule of 20% savings right off the bat. But I'll, I'll add to that that um, the other things that the money can be used for is the do the, the weatherization or, or electricity upgrades that you might need to, to do in order to get a home ready for the solar. So, for example, if you needed to repair your roof before you could put solar on, up to 20% of the funds can be used for that. If you needed to upgrade your electricity system, up to 20% of the funds could be used for that, which is really helpful because we have some homes that just aren't ready for solar and we need to be able to invest in those homes to make it appropriate for the solar. And then the other piece I'll add is that you can add storage in some cases if, it, if it's something that is needed. Um, and so we're looking at different ways to use storage as a complement to the solar once that um, is installed. Yeah, the, the storage will be very much a pilot and boxed in, probably focused on households that are reliant on powered medical equipment. And that's partly to meet the requirements of the NOFO and partly to make prudent use of the federal funding. One of the other things that we can expect from Solar for All is a great benefit of the way the state energy office works across their silos. So the weatherization program and Solar for All are going to be able to work very, very closely together, which means that a solar benefit will be able to flow to a house that's already gotten their energy efficiency button up 
from weatherization or from low income weatherization or LIHEAP. And so that allows a much more comprehensive approach to addressing energy burden for a particular household. Well, thanks for, for letting me test y'all on the ins and outs of, of solar for all. I know you're in the midst of putting together proposals right now at the state energy office. So um, I know a lot of that's still coming together, but I know it's an, an area that a lot of our listeners will be really interested in, in tracking and, and keeping up with North Carolina's role in that whole program moving forward. For your listeners who want to stay apprised of this as it evolves, they can go to the state energy office website and add their name to the interest list. And then they will get the announcements when the stakeholder process starts. And we've been really overwhelmed with letters of support from stakeholders across the state. It's just been a really spectacular display of enthusiasm and interest and partnership and teamwork. So we're really optimistic about the stakeholder side of solar for all when it comes out. And for that link on, for the state energy office, for the solar for all engagement list, we'll, pl- we'll post that on the, oh, maybe you can post it on the squeaky clean podcast. I sure can. I'll make sure to include the link in the show notes of this episode. Jen, a little bit earlier, you, you mentioned some of the, you know, the, the overall barriers that you were looking to address via the clean energy fund but what do you foresee as the, the biggest opportunities moving forward for the, the Clean Energy Fund to be working on and addressing moving forward here in the market in North Carolina? Yeah, I mean, so, so many, many opportunities we've found um, just in, in, in listening. I think our biggest opportunity and what we're jumping on is just you know this, this amazing amount of funding that's coming through the Inflation Reduction Act. And we want to be able to make sure that North Carolina... Is, is maximizing that to the extent it can to build these sustainable systems, to build our ecosystem of community lenders, to make sure that we can continue this even after the funding is gone. And so, you know, when we were mentioning things like the solar for all, which really has a target at um, low income households, that's definitely within our mission. And that's where we want to be. So that's why we've partnered with the state energy office to help that. But we're going to look continue to look for other opportunities to do that as well. I think I mentioned earlier that small businesses, perhaps maybe they don't have enough capital to, to get themselves the clean energy investment. So perhaps there are programs we can work with small businesses um, to help uh, advance clean energy investment in their areas. Farming, agricultural sectors, that's huge in North Carolina. We've heard a lot about that there are some needs there as well. Um, So definitely starting to reach out to communities to do that. One of the places that we think is really a clear-cut need is for nonprofits who are going to invest in clean energy and, they're, they're, and they'll be able to do that using the refundable tax credit, clean, federal clean energy tax credit under the Inflation Reduction Act. But if you imagine you're the, let's say you're on the board of your, your nonprofit building, your house of worship, you have to come up with that money when you build the system. And then you, and only then can you file for the refundable tax credit, and then you need to wait for it. So a loan to fill that time between when you got to pay the installer and when you get your tax credit seems like a place that we could really usefully bring some of these tools to bear to enable more nonprofits to go ahead and take advantage of that opportunity. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, bridge bridge financing um, is is something that we really want to look at. Just that interim gap funding to make sure that someone can do the project. They know they're going to get repaid, um, and that can apply to other types of incentives as well. And I think the other thing that's kind of tied to that, and that goes back to the the opportunities through the bipartisan infrastructure law as well as Inf- Inf- Inflation Reduction Act. Is, is cost share. You know, when I was working at the Department of Transportation, I heard a lot about smaller businesses that wanted to engage in things like the um, NEVI program, the National EV Infrastructure Program, right? They couldn't come up with 20% cost share. So how can the Clean Energy Fund work with them to help fund that 20% cost share that they'll know will get repaid over time and, and work through some sort of a financial product for them? So I think lots of opportunities, not just within the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. We're just looking to match up that need that we're hearing about, that we're seeing, and then bring in the, the financing tools. And I should mention one of the things we have, I've talked about the ecosystem a lot, right? Like bringing in our other lenders. As that becomes more mature and robust and we aren't needed as much, we're going to back off and we're going to say, whoa, it's working now. The market is working. Where's that other gap? We know there's more gaps, right? So bring us the other gaps. We'll fill this gap over here um, and we'll let that market just continue to roll. So there'll be, we're going to be pretty flexible. A nonprofit gives us the ability to do that, just nimble, flexible, and start to move on as the market um, needs us to. We're working ourselves out of a job. <laughs> working ourselves out of a job. <laughs> well, I'll... Uh, I'll task our listeners to to reach out to both Jen and Melissa if you identify some financing needs that are taking place within the market. I'm sure they would love to hear from you. So so again, make sure to visit the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund's website and and find both Jen and Melissa on there. But before we wrap up, you know, you, you've talked about this world of opportunity that that you know is in front of us and for the Clean Energy Fund to be addressing. Can we talk about some of the financial tools and techniques that you have at your disposal to be able to work in some of those areas that we were just talking about? Yeah, the bridge financing is probably the the example that I trot out at dinner parties when somebody goes, what do you do exactly? The other, other examples are credit enhancement like loan loss reserves and loan guarantees like Jen was talking about. And sometimes we are pretty sure that our role will be to match an existing lender, an existing project to other guarantees such as with the U- U.S. Department of Agriculture has loan guarantees for clean energy and some funding. So there's a variety of different resources on the map already and that are also kind of mind-numbingly complicated. So finding ways to navigate that along with project owners and lenders we see as being really important. Yeah, and I can't I can't over overplay the uh, connector role as well. I mean, in some cases, it just won't be us doing the lending, and we will connect people with the lender that will do the lending. And I think that's important to note too, is that it will not always be the Clean Energy Fund, but certainly we can help as to our ability to match people up to the right place. Yeah, and you know, I think about when you're talking about loan loss reserve funds and CSEA previously had been involved in this space and in, in providing that tool to. For example, Roanoke Electric Cooperative up in the northeastern part of the state that offered a tariffed on bill financing program, which was instrumental to getting that program off the ground, which has been so successful for so many member owners up in that part of the state. And you know, now as we see programs like that really take off throughout the the rest of the country, and and spoiler alert for a lot of our listeners, we'll probably have a future episode on this. The the North Carolina Utilities Commission actually just authorized a tariffed on bill program for Duke Energy across the state moving forward, and so we're expecting to see Duke Energy here in the next few weeks file the official sort of tariffs associated with that program and more of the details. But that should be rolling out shortly, which has the potential to impact 
positively a lot of, of customers across the state of North Carolina. So loan loss has been instrumental in, in a lot of that, those programs starting up and moving forward. So excited about the, the role that the Clean Energy Fund will be playing in helping to support a variety of programs of that nature moving forward. So before we wrap up, was there anything else that you all wanted to cover that we have not covered thus far? I want to add that one of the things that was absolutely foundational in us being able to stand up and hit the ground running was the support of the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association, who provided a lot of mentoring and even office space and back office that for a new organization really let Jen and me focus on the technical work rather than learning QuickBooks. And it's really hard to overstate how valuable that was. Yes, thank you, thank you. And I did wanna add in addition, I mean, NCSEA has been a fantastic partner, um, but I also would be remiss if I didn't mention all the other partners, right? Like we wouldn't be successful without the multitude of partners, whether that's state and local governments, whether that's academic institutions, the community-based institutions, environmental justice, utilities. I mean, it's just been amazing just the, the conversations we've been having, the people that want to partner to do these types of programs together. So Solar for All really showed us just how strong that partnership is in North Carolina. And that's going to be so critical to us as we go to deploy not only Solar for All, but any of the programs that we want to be doing. So kudos to everybody out there who has partnered with us. And as Matt said before, if you haven't and you're just hearing about us, please reach out. We would, we would just love to talk to you and bring you into the network of partners that we're working with. And I'm sure all of those organizations would echo the same in appreciation for all the work that you both have done in starting up the Clean Energy Fund here in North Carolina in the important role that you are going to be serving here in the clean energy economy in North Carolina moving forward and helping to make sure that we're taking advantage of all the funding coming down from the federal government and providing opportunities for affordable, accessible, clean energy options for all North Carolinians moving forward. So with that being said, Jen and Melissa, thank you so much for for joining us on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. It truly was a, a, a pleasure and a privilege to have you both on today. Thank you so much, Matt. What a pleasure. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you. Overall, I am really excited about having an institution like the North Carolina Clean Energy Fund here in the state to focus on what I would equate to the last mile challenge in financing, helping to get more projects across the finish line, especially for communities who need it most. Additionally, having an entity focused on ensuring North Carolina is equipped and applying for the windfall of federal funding through the IRA, IIJA, and CHIPS Act is incredibly important to ensure we're embracing the opportunity that's currently presenting itself in the clean energy transition. As mentioned, make sure to keep up with the Clean Energy Fund's work via their LinkedIn, website, and via the State Energy Office, where you'll be able to get the latest status updates related to all of the proposals they're putting together now. All right, and that's all for today's episode. Have ideas for future episodes or a burning clean energy question you want to see covered? Send me a note at mattable at energync.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider contributing or sponsoring today to help ensure we can continue to bring you the great content like today's episode. Sponsorship opportunities and more can be found at energync.org forward slash the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. And episode 99 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the podcast on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.